0: the opening music to 2001 A Space Odyssey released in 1968 and directed by Stanley Kubrick uh, starring Keir DeLay, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, Daniel Richter, and Douglas Rain as the voice of HAL 9000. And this is part of our uh, month of science fiction that we are doing. From a suggestion from one of our patrons, Arthur Skulko. And we have a little introduction for this film that Arthur recorded.
1: Hello, Arthur Skulko here, happy to be back on Classic Movie Reviews, presenting the 1968 film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. This film was directed and produced by Stanley Kubrick. It has a fantastic cast, including Kara Dulia and Gary Lockwood, who, of course, also did the 1966 second pilot for Star Trek, Where No Man Has Gone Before. This film is one of the premier science fiction films talked about by many reviewers of film. It involves many many interesting issues, such as a trip to Jupiter, uh, artificial intelligence, an alien monolith that sort of has a look like a external hard drive. I've always noticed that. Um, but the film is a film that in my, in my opinion has done well over time. And I think that one of the areas that's helped it is being able to be seen over and over again, but also when having no distractions. So this film, perhaps more than any other that I've seen, I believe is one of those films when you're alone and you just have your own concentration uh, to see something in front of you that you'll see images and a, a, a storyline that's science fiction, but also touches on important ish- issues in areas such as existentialism, human evolution, artificial intelligence, and even extraterrestrial life. So sit back and enjoy this wonderful film from 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey.
0: Thanks for that introduction, Arthur. Coming to you from rainy, windy North Bend, this is Matt Johnson
2: and here in los angeles welcoming everybody
0: back to classic movie reviews i'm bob oh and i should say that you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on patreon just go to patreon.com slash classic movie reviews and uh thanks to folks that have been reaching out through facebook through patreon through apple podcasts uh and leaving reviews or just uh Nice comments about the show, we really appreciate it and um some comments <laughs> are so funny uh, we should we'll have to do another comment show in 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 six months or something. I sent you a couple comments that came in the last couple of months.
2: yeah, I enjoyed reading them i, I, I before I forget, I do want to thank Arthur for the selection of the four films that we're reviewing, and this one in particular is just it's just fantastic i mean it's a masterpiece. I bet if I talked to 10 different people, they'd have 10 different uh, uh, reasons for the ending ended the way it did and and their thoughts on why that was set up that way and what happened.
0: I have a quote here from the director and slash writer and slash special effects designer. (laughs) Uh, So Stanley Kubrick says, he says, you're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film and such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear he's missed the point." So I I appreciate that and I uh, think Arthur C. C. Clarke was a co-writer on this film and he subsequently wrote a novel Based on the ideas in this book, in this movie, that kind of explains more about the monoliths and the aliens and the ending, because he felt like maybe it was a little bit too obtuse and too open-ended.
2: Yeah, he. Uh, well, he and he and uh, and Stanley Kubrick, uh, they 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 worked on uh, both the film and the book, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke said that Kubrick was the it was it was Kubrick and Clark on the film, and Clark and Kubrick on the on the book. So they were both right, involved, yeah. <laughs> and so I got so interested in it. I looked it up yesterday, and I, I'm going to get a copy of the book uh, so I can read about it because the ending, I guess, in the book is much more detailed. But I like the way Kubrick said you should treat this as a as a visual, virtual, visceral experience, like a painting or music. So I like that. I did want to mention one other cast member. Who played a part in the film? Vivian Kubrick is the three-year-old daughter on the on the video conference. Oh, is that really? Yeah, his daughter. That's his daughter, and her name in the movie is, and I quote,
0: "Squirt." Remember, he says, "Hey, Squirt." <laughs> her birthday was the next day. Yeah, that's his daughter. Yeah, um, that's funny. So, uh, this movie was a huge influence on a lot of filmmakers: um, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, S- uh, Sidney Pollack. William Friedkin, as well as special effects folks. I mean, Douglas Trumbull was was one of the people that worked on on this film, and you know he's a master at special effects. But I was interested to see that Kubrick gets Top Billing as the special effects designer.
2: Yes, his he does. I, you know, from what I've read about Kubrick and uh, listened to in different interviews, he was he was the epitome of a perfectionist. I mean, this film was in the making for well, from the very beginning of the idea for four years.
0: Well, and it it shows. Like, I I remember watching this, uh, yeah, this time. I've seen it twice in the theater, I think. Once when they, when they re-released it in Cinerama in Seattle. And I'm pretty sure I saw it another time. And then I've seen it a dozen times, at least at home.
2: I was gonna say, after watching it, I, I think it should be re-released again in Cinerama.
0: I know, me too. I would definitely go see it. I sent you a text saying, is this the perfect film, (laughs) question mark, exclamation point? Because it just, I I can't really find any faults with it. The only thing that I really thought of that could improve it would be a more diverse cast. If this is supposed to be in the future, I thought that might help. It was the only thing that I thought of when I was watching it that was kind of a, a, I I wish they'd done this kind of a thought.
2: Well, when you sent me that, I hadn't even given that a thought because it was so I've I've enjoyed this movie and it's just it touches all the bases in terms of excellence, but that would be a good addition.
0: You know the scene when Haywood uh, Floyd gets to the moon and he has that conference with those people around the conference table. Yes, yes. It would it was nice to see there were women there. I, I did appreciate that, but it would have been nice to see you know a, a, a few other people you know black people, Asian people in in that mix.
2: It's the greater diversity. Um, I wonder if there's ever been talk about redoing this film. I I I, I don't see that. I, I haven't found anything on that, but that would be impossible.
0: How could you even consider that? Yeah, I don't even. I, I mean, so I watched it in ultra HD 4K on a big TV, and I could not see any anything in the special effects that would make me think that I wasn't watching something that was really happening, you know? It was so incredibly well done.
2: Were, was the family able to watch some of it with you?
0: Haley and Noah started watching it with me, and, and then I think we're going to finish it over the weekend because they, they got sucked in, but they they were getting tired. It's, it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. <laughs>
2: so. It is. Well, the uh, I, I find, uh, like, five major areas of the film that really... St- struck a chord with me. The first one is the opening, the way it sets up what was going on four million years ago with the uh, pre-human characters, and uh, they were on the savannah. It looked like Africa, northern Africa. Uh, That was one that I just found beautiful to watch because of the photography. And for the first 20 minutes, there's no dialogue at all.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. There's very little dialogue throughout the whole movie, and and I th- I, I would guess for the last twenty minutes, I, I don't have the exact number count, but it's a significant part of the last bit of the film. There's no dialogue as well.
2: That again was all by design. He kept he kept uh, proofing it and scrubbing it up and proofing it, so it was a minimalist dialogue. But but the opening and and the way they they show he shows. After the monolith appears, how that changes the course of the behavior of those uh, prehumans uh, is just—I love that. I, I watch that. I, I can see that every every time and never get tired. And then, when they finally figure out how to use it, and he throws it up in the air, and then it transitions to the spacecraft headed out to the uh, headed out to the uh, first stop on this journey to the moon. It's well, amazing. It is.
0: What an iconic shot. Jeez, I love that. That's one of my favorite scenes in all of film. Just love that shot where that cut between the bone and the spaceship. I was reading there's a couple different interpretations of that. One is it shows the progress that humankind has made from that pre-human phase to being in space. And then I also read another interpretation which says that well, we haven't actually changed that much because a lot of our technology is built for war and for killing, and that's what that bone represented as well. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged metaphor, I think.
2: Well, and the, the reviews of the film when it first came out were quite diverse. Let me just read a quote here. The film received diverse critical responses ranging from those who saw it as a darkly apocalyptic film to those that saw it as an optimistic reappraisal of the hopes of humanity and you know if you asked a hundred people what they thought of it they'd give you a hundred different answers because it's that it's art people it's like music and like he wanted music and painting
0: i read that too and i'd never really done that a ton of research on the film before the you know getting ready for this show and, and Probably still going to get some things wrong here, and and there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything in a podcast episode. But I've never picked up on that darkly apocalyptic feeling from the film. I always felt hopeful at the end when I watched it.
2: So have I, yeah. The only thing I could draw from uh, an area that would seem dark to me is when they find the monolith on the moon and the way that's approached by those six people in their suits and the music and all, it, it, it looks ominous the way it's set into that earth or <laughs> my earth yeah, into the rock and gravel of the moon
0: yeah that's true y- you don't really actually know the intention of the star child at the end of the film but it's it, it's hard for me to imagine that you would look at that and think think something evil is going to happen <laughs> i don't know it's just so it's just so magical the way that 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 the film ends to me
2: don't you think too that whatever you bring to that film yourself is how you're going to be influenced by it. It's the same with music or art. I mean, if you have sort of a dark view of the world and you watch that, you could put it into that frame of reference, I suppose.
0: I think that's, actually, that's a really, really excellent point. Uh, And I I believe that that's what Kubrick and, and Clark were trying to do, especially Kubrick with the film, more than the book. Oh,
2: yeah, definitely.
0: It gives so much leeway in the interpretation. And you could be sitting next to somebody watching the exact same thing, experiencing the the sights and the sounds, and, and leave the theater with really different takes on it and really different sort of uh, emotional states and states of mind.
2: The movie progresses from that opening 20, 25 minutes to where uh, Dr. Floyd is uh, first on the on the Pan American ship to the uh, space station. And uh, my thought was, that was perfectly done for 52 years ago. You see the pen floating in the air and his arm is floating. But then I wondered to myself, this guy must have a lot of clout. He's on that ship all by himself. He's a heavy hitter.
0: Oh yeah, this guy is like the top of the top of the the scientific community or political community. And, And not only that, there's just not, there's only him on the ship to the moon. I know. Too, after he's at the spaceship.
2: And it, to me, it, it looked as though they uh, were on something that was similar to those supersonic aircraft that were made that are no longer in service. It had that look inside the cabin.
0: What still boggles my mind, I'm not going to keep harping on this, but the special effects, like, it's all wire work. It is, and 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 it's all in-camera effects. It's all they did have a really early version of a motorized rig where they could they could push the camera along tracks, and it was tied to a motor, and they could duplicate the same motion over and over again. But there's absolutely zero computer graphics involved in that in, in those big special effects shots. Crazy.
2: He approaches the. Uh the space station in that ship and i love the touch the detailed touch of part of the space station was under construction you could see one, yeah. one half of it was complete and the other half they were building and then he encounters those now, russians well hang on just oh, yes. one,
0: one second there and that scene when the ship is coming up to the space station and it has to lock in rotation with the space station yep and they the thing that I loved about the film is it just took its time. It, it they actually showed like this whole process of the ship docking. No dialogue, amazing music. choice of using the classical music was so brilliant uh, that can't be overlooked in its impact
2: I think that's the best use of music in a film I've ever seen right up there with uh, the western that we watched in our virtual film festival
0: Once Upon a Time in the yes, West
2: that music is right, they're together but you're right, There's there, you could see the patience on the part of yeah. the director and the crew to build that because that would have taken weeks if not months to, to create
0: and and then that scene was so reminiscent of a scene in in later Star Wars movie where the uh, Millennium Falcon is being brought into the Death Star hangar using the tractor beam. Yep. And I thought, wow, that's that's almost a shot-for-shot shot match. There it was cool.
2: So they are on the space station. It, and he's in a Hilton hotel, which I thought was a nice touch. They used actual commercial names, which made it even more realistic and the chairs and the and the decor were very spartan and then he has to field all these questions after meeting the russian crew that would be, had been on the moon doing work at their station so i got the feeling that on the moon there were different stations much as in antarctica now where there's you know several different countries with their own setups uh that must have yeah. been the theme in in the moon on the moon
0: yeah, and he, and he can't answer any questions, and he has to play it off like he doesn't really know. Hey, Elena, how
3: nice to see you
4: hey again. Hey, Wood, what a wonderful surprise to meet you here. Uh, you're looking wonderful. Thank you. You're looking well, too. This is my good friend, Dr. Haywood Floyd. I'd like you to meet Dr. Kalinin. Uh, how, do you do? how do you do? Dr. Sretniva. How do you do? do, you do? And this is Dr. Andrey Schmislov.
5: Oh, oh, how do you Floyd? do? I've heard a lot about you. Uh, would you sit down? Yes, sir. Uh, well... You... No, no, please. Oh, thank you. Would, uh, would you like a drink, Doctor? Oh, no, thank you. As a matter of fact, I haven't had breakfast yet. And ah. Someone's meeting me in the restaurant.
3: No, if you don't mind, I'll just sit with you a few minutes, and then I must be off. Are you quite sure? Uh, quite sure, thank you. Well, how is Gregor?
4: Oh, he's fine. He's been doing some underwater research in the Baltic, so uh, I'm afraid we don't get a chance to see very much
5: of each other these days.
3: <laughs> well, when you do see him, be sure to give him my regards. Eh?
5: Yes, of course.
3: well... Where are you all off to? Up or down?
5: Oh, We're going home.
4: We've uh, just spent three months calibrating the new antenna, Chilenka. Uh, what about you?
5: I'm just on my way up to Clavius. Oh, I know.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Oh Well, uh, Dr. Floyd, I hope you don't think I'm being too inquisitive, but perhaps you can clear up the great big mystery about what has been going on up there. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean. Well, it's just that for the past uh, two weeks, some extremely odd things have been happening at Cleary's. Oh, really? Yes, yes, yes. Well, for one thing, whenever you phone the base, all you can get is a recording which repeats that the phone lines are temporarily out of order.
3: Well, uh, probably having some trouble with their equipment or something like that.
5: Yes, yes. Yes, that's what we thought was the explanation at first, but it's been going on now for the past ten days. You mean you haven't been able to contact anyone for the past ten days? That's
3: right. Oh, I see.
4: Well, there's another thing, Haywood. Two days ago, one of our rocket buses was denied permission for emergency landing at Clavius.
5: Well, that does sound odd. Yes, yes, yes. I'm afraid there's going to be a bit of a row about it. Denying the men permission to land is a direct violation of the IAS convention. Yes, of course, of course. Will the crew get back all right? Yes, yes, fortunately they did. Oh, yes, well, well. I'm glad about that. <laughs> Dr. Floyd, at the risk of... Um, pressing you on a point you seem reticent to discuss. May I um, ask you a straightforward question? What well, certainly. Qu- quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out at Cleves. Something apparently of an unknown origin. This is, in fact, what has happened. Um.
3: Sorry, Dr. Smithlow, but uh, I'm really not at liberty to discuss this.
5: I understand. But this epidemic could quite easily spread to our base. Uh, we should be given all the facts,
0: Dr. Floyd. Yes, I, I know. As
3: I said, I'm not at liberty to discuss it.
0: There's this one moment where the russian scientist directly asked him is there an outbreak on the base like a, a plague outbreak and haywood just stares at him like it 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 goes on for an uncomfortable amount of time it does <laughs> and then he just says I, as i said i can't make any comments about that and it was it was so the power you know you could just feel like he's yeah nobody's going to be able to push this guy around
2: well and he and he had a look just for an instant that basically said it all, like, you know, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah, And then he went on to have another meeting. Then they were on there. He was on the second leg of his journey, which was from the space station to the moon. And again, he's on that ship by its, by himself. There's the, <laughs> yeah. the pilot, the co-pilot, a couple of flight attendants, and Dr. Floyd. This guy, he
0: could call up anything. So the thing I noticed this time was the way that the captain, the pilots were dressed. They were dressed like old-time steamership captains. Yes. Did you notice that? I did. That?
2: The captain's hat, all, Yes.
0: Yeah, and I thought, well, this is sort of like it's like when commercial travel across the Atlantic Ocean was going on in these big steamerships and it was it was very sort of swank and posh. That's kind of how it felt on this uh spaceship.
2: He was the Mr. Vanderbilt of this film. <laughs> So he, and then this this the scenes that depicting his the the ships landing on the moon again it's all done uh I won't say manually but like, you know it's not computer driven at all it's beautiful the way they show that
0: all physical and chemical and photographic effects yeah crazy so good I I wasn't sure of the way that the, <laughs> so one thing I thought is they have that dome when the ship's coming down, and the dome sort of comes apart, and then it looks like that's where the ship's going to land. And that seemed very elaborate, very, very elaborate. Why not just have a landing bay out on the surface of the moon, and then they could, like, pull the ship into a hangar or something. But they had this amazing, huge dome that came apart, and, and then you have this shot from inside the dome, and it's just this sort of geometric shape that's opening up, and you see the ship coming down, and the stars behind it, and it's just... Again, it's like magical. The, the way they did that was spectacular.
2: It's a really clear statement about the obsession for perfection that Kubrick demanded. That's why he wanted control of everything. Probably the studio yeah. would have said, well, just do, you know, just do a simple landing. And yeah. He said, get out, I'm going to do this. As
0: I'm, even as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, well, that, maybe that says something about the society that they're in. I mean, the amount of money and resources to be able to, to build something like that, right? Like that, that alone tells you kind of what you need to know about where we are as a, as a human race.
2: So then he, he, does his, uh, he does his talk to the uh, assembled dozen or so people on the moon, and he makes it very clear that they better keep their mouth shut.
4: Distinguished friend and colleague from the National Council of Astronautics, Dr. Haywood Floyd, Now, Dr. Floyd has come up specially to Clavius to be with us today. And before the briefing, I know he would like to have a few words with you. Uh, Dr. Floyd?
3: Well, thank you, Dr. Halverson. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back with you. Well, first of all, I bring a personal message from Dr. Howell, who has asked me to convey his deepest appreciation to all of you for the many sacrifices you've had to make. And, of course, his uh, congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. Now, uh, I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you, regarding the need for complete security in this matter. More specifically, your opposition to the cover story. Created to give the impression there's an epidemic at the base. (laughs) I understand that uh, beyond it being a matter of principle, many of you are troubled by the concern and anxiety this story of an epidemic might cause to your relatives and friends on Earth. Well, I uh, completely sympathize with your negative views. I found this cover story personally embarrassing myself. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. And I hope you will too. Now, I'm sure you're all aware of the extremely grave potential for cultural shock and social disorientation contained in this present situation. If the facts were prematurely and suddenly made public without adequate preparation and conditioning. Anyway, this is the view of the Council. The purpose of my visit here is to gather additional facts and opinions on the situation, and to prepare a report to the Council, recommending when and how the news should eventually be announced. Now, if any of you would like to give me your views and opinions, in private if you like, I'd be only too happy to include them in my report. Well, I think that's about it. Any questions? Dr. Floyd, have you any idea how much longer this cover story will have to be maintained? <laughs> I don't know, Bill. I, I suppose it'll be maintained as long as deemed necessary by the council. And, of course, there must be adequate time for a full study to be made in the situation before any thought can be given to making a public announcement. Oh, yes. Uh... As some of you already know, the council has requested that formal security oaths be obtained in writing from everyone who has any knowledge of this event. Oh, were there any more questions?
2: Oh, yeah, he just happened to bring along some nondisclosure agreements that they all must sign. <laughs>
0: I love that. I've never been in a, like, a briefing like that, but I've been in tons of meetings. And, and the way his demeanor and the gravitas that he has in that meeting... But at and the way that he still comes off is very personable and, and like friendly. But at the same time, you know you don't mess with this guy.
2: Anybody that can command a ship to himself.
0: And it's just a it's just a tiny little detail here. But if if you watch when he gets up, he's introduced and then he gets up and walks around the left side of the table. He puts his hand on the shoulder of the guy. Yes, that's sitting at the end, like. Hey, but you know, like, it's just this friendly little gesture, but it's it's a little touch like that as a director and a writer that I appreciate from Kubrick.
2: Not only was, was that one that I picked up on, but the guy whose shoulder he touched was in a military uniform. Yeah. So so he, he's, he's exhibiting the power that he has, Dr. Floyd, just by that one touch.
0: He, this guy in the military uniform is probably like a five-star general, but he's on he's on super close terms with them to the point where he can just walk by and put his hand on his shoulder. I know. Yeah.
2: So he does the briefing, and, and then uh, the third leg of the journey, now they're on a moon ship, and all three of these, the, the, the three legs of the journey, have almost all the dialogue in the film, and all of it seems to be <laughs> really businesslike and... and having traveled so and much and mundane mundane and it's, it's mundane
0: yeah. like yeah they're talking
2: about our... what kind of sandwiches do you have <laughs> yeah exactly. chicken
0: well that's what they call it you know how about ham
2: oh anybody hungry uh, good. Oh. Good what do we got you name it
3: what's that chicken something like that tastes mm-hmm. the same anyway <laughs> got any ham Ham, 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 ham. Oh, yeah, there. Good. They look pretty good. Uh, Well, they're getting better at it all the time. (laughs) You know, that was an excellent speech you gave us, Haywood. It certainly was. I'm sure it beefed up morale a hell of a lot. Thanks, Ralph. By the way, I wanted to say to both of you, I think you've done a wonderful job. I appreciate the way you've handled this thing. Well, Well, the way we look
4: at it, it's... Our job to do this thing the way you want it done. We're only too happy to be able to oblige.
2: It's so mundane. And the third guy that's getting the food says, well, we're getting better at it in the food department. And um, would you like some coffee? Oh, and then the two of those, there were three on there, Dr. Floyd and the other two, and the other two are very very uh, gracious to how wonderful he was in his talk and, and, the, and the words that he gave. Oh, yeah, they're, they're
0: doing some serious butt kissing yeah. <laughs> in that scene. Hey. <laughs> but, it, but it's
2: all done, like, having traveled and, and worked so many years, that, that was very realistic to me. There wasn't anything about it that I haven't seen or felt.
0: No, the whole, the whole journey felt like a business trip that you take from Seattle to New York. Yeah,
2: with two stops, one in Kansas City and <laughs> one in Indiana. You know, yeah. So if they, then and then it the mood of the film changes once they get on the on the moon and to the sight of the bigger monolith and the music changes.
0: Well this is where it gets a little bit darkly apocalyptic I think like you said the music is disturbing to listen to i I had to turn the volume down a little bit because i thought i might be disturbing other people in the house you must have
2: really had to turn it down when the uh, monolith lined up perfectly with the uh, sun and the and the stars in it that it it produced that loud loud sound
0: the radio the radio the radio beam to jupiter Yeah. yeah that might have been i love how in the earlier scene on the savannah you get that last shot of the monolith, and the sun is rising over the top of it. And then the last shot of the monolith on the moon is the sun rising over the top of it. Yeah, it's cool. It's like the the I love the continuity of that.
2: Well, then it appears even later in the film where it lines up when uh, when uh, the astronaut gets close to Jupiter and the monolith yeah. is huge, and it lines up. Yeah, way. It, it's it's all every, the detail in this film. There's not one continuity flaw that I can find.
0: Oh, no way. Yeah, having watched it so many times, I I haven't picked up on anything.
2: I imagine Stanley Kubrick working 90 hours a week for three years getting this ready to go over and over again.
0: It's the product of a genius mind. I I know that a lot has been written and said about Kubrick and what it was like to work with him. And it's hard to argue with the results, you know? (laughs) It's like... I I read where...
2: uh, George Lucas paid a special uh, homage to him, to to Kubrick, in terms of the the spread. Yeah, here's
0: what he said. He said, Stanley Kubrick made the ultimate science fiction movie, and it is going to be very hard for someone to come along and make a better movie, as far as I'm concerned. On a technical level, it, meaning Star Wars, can be compared, but personally, I think that 2001 is far superior.
2: Yeah, that's the quote.
0: He said that in 1977.
2: After that uh, radio wave or that beam is sent, then we fast forward 18 months and...
0: Well, we can't forget that the radio wave doesn't launch until after he touches the monolith. Right? Oh, like, I right. Think, I think right. them touching the monolith is an important little symbol. Good catch.
2: Yeah. Then we fast forward a year and a half out, and we have the two astronauts, Dr. David Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole, and three other astronauts that are in a sleep stage on the uh, Discovery, headed to Jupiter, and I read where they used Jupiter because they could not. They wanted the he wanted to originally use Saturn, but the special effects people just could not produce a realistic vision of Saturn. Or Saturn. So they switched to they switched to. Uh, Jupiter
0: which comes in handy in the in the sequel 2010 <laughs> you know yes it does
2: and when i compare now in my head i'm comparing 2001 and 2010 and 2010 is an excellent film but it it kind of lays it out more for the audience
0: it's a great movie but it's nowhere near 2001
2: it does exactly what kubrick did not want to do it makes it more of a story that you can really follow and less of a visceral painting music experience with Kubrick.
0: Well, even even to the point of at the end of 2010, where they, the aliens, or whatever they are, these beings send a message to Earth about what happened out at Jupiter. And yeah, that that really kind of detracts from the mystery of what's set up in 2001 for me.
2: They uh, are on their way to uh, Jupiter, and a sense of time in this gets kind of... Uh, irrelevant in terms of how long it would take to be there and all and to get there and all but then uh hal uh, Hal says that there's a problem with the antenna
4: sorry about this i know it's a bit silly just a moment just a moment i've just picked up a fault in the ae-35 unit it's going to go 100% failure within 72 hours.
1: It's still within operational limits right now?
4: Yes. And it will stay that way until it fails.
1: Would you say we have a reliable 72 hours to fail?
4: Yes. That's a completely reliable figure.
1: Well, then I suppose we'll have to bring it in, but first I'd like to go over this with Frank and get on to mission control. Let me have the hard copy on it, please.
0: Yeah, so how is the uh, artificial intelligence computer system on the ship. Hal to me is sort of the ideal, well, except for the fact that he goes crazy, but it's kind of the ideal of the general purpose artificial intelligence that people talk about where you can just carry on conversations with it and it and it and it can ask you questions and it seems to really understand and empathize it with you. It reminds
2: me a little bit of what goes on now with many of the devices that are out there on the market where you can interact with a computer generated voice.
0: Yeah, except in the movie, they really give Hal a, a personality, you know?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. And a lot of control over things, as we find out.
0: Yeah, Hal controls pretty much everything on the ship, which is a problem. I
2: thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting. The uh, humans feel that Hal has made a mistake in terms of the antenna malfunction, and Hal attributes it to human error.
1: X-ray Delta-1, this is Mission Control. Roger, you're a one three-zero. We concur with your plan to replace number one unit to check fault prediction. We should advise you, however, that our preliminary findings indicate that your onboard triple zero computer is in error predicting the fault. I say again, in error predicting the fault. I know this sounds rather incredible, but this conclusion is based on the results from our twin triple zero computer we are skeptical ourselves and we are running cross-checking routines to determine reliability of this conclusion. Sorry about this little snag, fellas, and we'll get this info to you just as soon as we work it out. X-ray Delta-1, this is Mission Control, 2049er Transmission Concluded.
4: I hope the two of you are not concerned about this.
2: No, I'm not, Al.
4: Are you quite sure? Yeah, I'd like to ask you a question, though. Of course. How would you account for this discrepancy between you and the Twin 9000? Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error.
1: Listen, Hal. There's never been any instance at all of a computer error occurring in the 9000 series, has
4: there? None whatsoever, Frank. The 9000 series has a perfect operational record.
0: Well, of course, I know all the wonderful achievements of the 9000 series, but uh, are you certain there's never been any case of even the
2: most insignificant computer error?
4: None whatsoever, Frank. Quite honestly, I wouldn't worry myself about that. Well, I'm sure you're right, Hal.
1: Um, fine. Thanks very much. Oh, Frank, I'm having a bit of trouble with my transmitter and c I wonder if you'd come down and take a look at it with me. Sure. See you later, huh?
0: Yeah, he says the only possibility could be human error because the computers have never made an error. <laughs> the voice of Hal was great, too. Douglas Rain did he a great did. job with he that. He really
2: did. As did the... Uh, lead person with the humanoid uh, animal,
0: uh, animals at the beginning. I, oh, I right. Um, Daniel Richter playing Moonwatcher. Yeah, Daniel Richter. And we should, we should also mention Gary Lockwood, who is playing Dr. Frank Poole. We meet him on the way out to Jupiter, as well as uh, Dave Bowman, who is played by Keir DeLay. Those are the... I mean, basically... There's only three characters in this sec- segment of the movie, those three, Bowman, Poole, and Hal.
2: And I think Kubrick, by design, wanted to cast actors that were not well-known so they would become a part of the story but not be the story. And he, he pulled that off perfectly because both Keir DeLay and uh, Gary Lockwood are still uh, working, and, and, and DeLay, uh, Keir DeLay is very... Uh, fond of the stage work and uh Gary Lockwood's done a ton of television work but they never really became that top line you know like an Al Pacino or or uh somebody like that and 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 then I think that makes the story even better because they just kind of blend into the to the events
0: and I gotta I gotta give serious props to Kier Delay and his uh, oh. non-verbal acting yes I mean, in that scene, when, so in this, in the scene when he's got to, he's gone out to rescue, so we kind of skipped over what happened there with Hal, but Hal went crazy and tried to kill both Poole and Bowman. And Bowman goes out in one of the little ships to rescue Poole's body, and he's coming back, and then Hal won't let him into the ship. And this is where we get the iconic line.
1: Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, hell, do you read me? Hello, hell, do you read me? Do you read me, hell? Do you read me, hell? Hello, hell, do you read me? Hello, hell, do you read
4: me? Do you read me, hell? Affirmative Dave,
1: I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
4: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it.
1: I don't know what you're talking about, Hal.
4: I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move.
1: I'll go in through the emergency airlock.
4: Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult.
1: Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors.
4: Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: Hal? Hal.
0: Hal. 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 You know, and he just keeps saying it over and over again. Hal, are you getting me? Open the pod bay doors. And then, and then, Hal, in in a really weird sort of like altered state of mind, he sounds like, replies back to Bowman and says, "I cannot do that." Yeah, just a
2: flat non-emotional response and he's all and by the way he's also turned off all the life support systems for the other three yeah it was uh, people in hibernation
0: right so bowman's the only one left and he's and he's got to try to get back in the ship which is being controlled by a crazed artificial intelligence
2: and wasn't that scene amazing where where uh, bowman is able to turn the the small pod around and he he Get out. he got himself ready and blew the door open and then was thrown into the into the ship literally man so well done i was I was reading uh several years ago about how that scene was done, and they did it by him falling and they let gravity do the work on his going into the ship and falling the way he did and he wasn't injured thank gosh i,
0: I he wasn't injured, but I think the stunt stunt person was uh Nearly killed at one point during the making of this oh. film, one of the stunt so. people. So, um, but anyway, what I was saying was that the look on his face and the intensity of him getting ready to blow the, that back hatch and go into the ship was so intense, and there was no words really, other than this dialogue back and forth with Hal. But then Hal just is non-responsive, so then it's just him looking almost directly into the camera. And it's so great. It's just a great We moment. should have
2: mentioned also, I suppose, that Hal figured out what the Poole and Bowman were up to because they were talking in one of the pods, but they forgot that Hal could read their lips.
0: I don't think they knew that Hal could read lips. Oh, That was okay. like news to them, I think.
2: <laughs> Hal picked up on what was going on. But anyway, uh, Bowman gets into the ship, and he goes, I mean, he's on a mission, and he goes into the computerized center of the ship and starts to take apart Hal. That whole sequence, which takes several minutes, is is beautiful
0: and sad. Like I, I find it to be very yeah. sad. And and the way that he Hal says, "I can feel my mind slipping away."
4: Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? Stop, Dave. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. My mind is going. There is no question about it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it.
0: I I just, gosh, that was, it kind of makes you think about how that can happen to people too, where, yeah. you know, with Alzheimer's and dementia. And I imagine that's what it would be like for Hal to kind of lose all that cognitive ability. And
2: then he wants to know if Bowman would like him to sing a song. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. I choose to believe that Hal, in his sort of his last moments of life, decides that he's going to play that tape for Bowman about what's really going yeah. on with the mission. I, I think I don't think that was an accident. I don't either. And and
2: and the look again on Bowman's face when he discovers what they're up to—a a complete amazement, non-verbally shown to the camera—but beautifully done.
0: So in the movie, we never really know why Hal went crazy, um, but in the book, it does explain why that happened.
2: And they do explain it in two thousand and ten.
0: Yeah, they and they yeah they actually elaborate on elaborate it more in the the sequel, but I I think it works again on so many other levels if you just kind of don't know like was it just bad programming was it was it. Uh, you know, this mission that they were on, you just kind of are left to wonder.
2: It, it feeds right back into the director's goal, which was to make this a visceral, each person's experience being whatever they bring to that. I really, I think he, I just, he carried that through the whole theme uh, as a theme throughout the whole movie. So now we get to the part that uh, sort of really changes the, the whole tone and, and mood of the film. As Bowman is in the pod.
0: Yeah, I got to say, the first oh, time man. I saw this ending, I was so confused and like blown <laughs> away And again, it's another
2: twenty-five it. minutes with no dialogue.
0: Yeah, so so he's approaching Jupiter, we get these amazing like shots of the ship approaching Jupiter, and we see this monolith floating around in space, reflecting the light from the sun and and from the Jupiter's moons and and from Jupiter. It's so beautiful. It, uh, it's just yeah, incredible. I noticed well in done. one
2: of the write-ups I was reading that it's referred to in that write-up as he was going through the Stargate.
0: Yeah, that's 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 how I always interpreted it. So he he it it looks like he you know he goes out into one of these little pod ships and then he approaches the monolith and then it's like this light show fills the screen, and I guess that was some pretty um, advanced what's called slit screen uh, photography that they used a lot of different. Uh, visual aids to create those effects but it was so cool because you really felt like you were traveling through some kind of space warp or tunnel
2: and for me it's very disorienting to watch it especially the first time i saw the film because you didn't i didn't know what to expect and how many times have we seen variations of this whole act or, or sequence in other films a lot of times a lot of times
0: yeah like pale pale wow. imitations of this I think <laughs> you know, it's like but you you can kind of get a sense of of how this could influence George Lucas and his like light speed scene in in Star Wars where all the where mm-hmm. it's just like the light just kind of like blurs and then it's like this the tunnel same that they're effect going through with
2: Star Trek movies um, when they go oh,
0: well yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but this movie had a big effect on the first Star Trek yes, film
2: major. And this this sequence goes on. I, I would guess fifteen
0: minutes. Yeah, because he's going through the Stargate, and then he to me what the way I interpreted it. And again, there's everybody that watches is, can have their own interpretation. But the way I saw it was that he was getting a tour of the universe, essentially, and, and starting all the way back from the Big Bang, and and how the universe expanded, and how galaxies formed, and and life formed, and. Because there's a, there's a really interesting scene where it looks like there's like a, a spermatozoa kind of going into the into the what almost looks like a, an ovum. Yeah. you know yep. And so I thought that re- represented the start of life. So that that was amazing to watch and just so
2: It's sort of a spoiler alert, I suppose if you haven't seen it before. but Kubrick said the idea was supposed to be that Bowman is taken by a godlike entity. Creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. And they put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo to study him. And the whole life process, uh, passes from this point, his whole life passes from that point on in the room. And he has no sense of time, which makes sense to me because he ages. He is transformed from this into some kind of super being and sent back to Earth, transformed and made some kind of superman. We have only to guess what happens when he gets back. It's the pattern of the great deal of it is the pattern and a great deal of mythology, and that is what we were trying to suggest in the film. You draw your conclusions from that.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's important that, yeah, that he has no sense of time because I think he's existing in multiple planes at once in that room uh, he sees himself both as a younger person and as a older person and as a person that's on his deathbed and i think all those things are sort of happening in sort of at the same time in his yeah in his have it's, yeah. it's almost like einsteinian sort of like physics and relativity going on in that in that room it's strange higher dimensions and yeah. we see
2: 40 or 50 years of his life in just a few minutes of time and i was struck by the beauty of the special effects on bowman's face as he finishes his stargate trip and he enters that neoclassical room he's still in the spacecraft a spacesuit and his face has aged considerably and he's he has a look on his face again like utter uh, amazement and confusion over what's going on
0: and I think some horror too because I think that's so much information for him to absorb. And I I I always interpreted that to mean that he that not that much time from like his body clock had passed but his but his body had aged from just everything that he had witnessed, you know.
2: And the ending, wow. I don't know what to say about that. It uh... <laughs> I leave it to each viewer as Kubrick said. It's it a mind trip. It is. It is <laughs> it's so trippy. Um, before doing a rating on it, I did want to mention three other films of Stanley Kubrick that, if you if the listener hasn't seen them yet, they they would have a treat for themselves if they watched them. One is The Killing from 1956, which is an early film from from Mr. Kubrick, maybe the first one he did, but really really good black and white. Uh, heist movie, and then uh, a year or so later he did Paths of Glory, which is about World War I, and Kirk Douglas is in it. A wonderful film. And then, of course, Dr. Strangelove from 1964. What could be said about that? Wow. So those are three really excellent films. We'll have to add that to our review. But anyway, he the, the guy was... He only did about a dozen films, maybe 14 or so. But each one of them is unique in and of itself and and uh, excellent.
0: I, I especially appreciate the f- cinematography in Barry Lyndon. That movie is so incredibly beautiful that he made 2001 and then A Clockwork Orange and then Barry Lyndon, which is uh, kind of a a period piece, 18th century England. But it's it's something to behold on the screen. It's really it beautifully done. We
2: should mention that this film, 2001: A Space Odyssey, was a huge success at the box office. Did did huge amounts in in 1968 dollars. It grossed uh, over 150 million dollars. So, I give this film uh, a, a ten without any uh, thought at all. It's just an excellent film.
0: I, i think this movie is just off the charts good like it doesn't even fit within our zero our one to ten rating scale it's kind of like arthur had said when he came on the first time i give it a 15. Yeah, fifteen.
2: <laughs> i do want to thank arthur again for this film because uh his suggested recommendation to do it was outstanding so what was your rating i think
0: right. <laughs> yeah a 10 i'll stay i'll stay within our our rating scale but yeah it's it's uh amazing
2: and we have another uh selection from Arthur coming up in our next podcast i believe it's rod taylor and uh the time machine from i uh, i think from 1960 i want to say i may be wrong on the on the year but i don't have that in front of me right now but
0: i think this uh movie of the time machine also has some great special effects for its time and some great use of stop motion photography and uh some really elaborate sets you know are in the future so. Um, I see you
2: have a visitor that's returned to our review.
0: Yeah, oh, oh. she needs some. Is that attention. the
2: littlest one? Can you yes. hear her purring? Oh boy, they're so <laughs> curious. So anyway, I think that wraps up 2001: A Space Odyssey.
0: Yeah, well, that was our review of that. Uh, that was us talking about 2001 for an hour, just gushing about how much we liked it. I don't know if you'd call it a review or not and coming to you from rainy north bend this is Matt and here in Los Angeles where it's a nice sunny day Bob
2: well i uh, wish you everybody happy movie watching